Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, we are ready for Matthew chapter 5 today. I'm not sure if you're too familiar with how many of you guys have a red letter Bible. Some of you. Now, I've I've been using the same Bible for 20 years. And when this Bible, um, not the same exact Bible, this is my fourth one. Um, When it wears out, then I buy the same exact Bible that I had before. And part of the reason is because it's a it's a wide margin Bible. And it's one I just got really used to for preaching and teaching. And, you know, one of the things that happens when you've had the same Bible for a long time, sometimes I don't know the necessarily the the verse and the the chapter of where it is, but I know exactly where it is in, in on the page. It's right here. It's over here. And I can find it very easily. And so I've had the same Bible. And the one thing I don't like about this particular Bible is that it's not red letter. I just bought two more so that when this one's done, I'm backed up for two more because they're out of print now. It's a Thomas Nelson 94 and they don't make them anymore. And so they're really expensive now. Somebody realized that, uh, anyways, not, 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 uh, just, um, so I do love the, the red letter edition Bible. I, I was listening to a preacher this recently, and he was saying that he does a lot of work in translating Bibles to different languages. And for whatever reason, he said in a lot of the different cultures and countries, they don't do red letter Bibles except in English. And so not maybe that you couldn't find them in Spanish or Chinese or places, but for the most part, it's, it's an English thing. So we have these red letters. And what is the first thing you notice about Matthew chapter five? If you have a red letter edition, it's all red letter. And then if you turn the page, what do you see? Go ahead. I want to see it, Jeremy, because mine doesn't have red letter. More red letter, right? Just just nonstop um, through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So Jesus is going to begin to speak at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and he's going to go for three chapters of, of Jesus speaking. Now, it, it's I have to confess, as a teacher of the word, as a preacher, as a pastor, this section of scripture is a little intimidating. And, um, you know, wanting to, to do it justice. I mean, this is Jesus preaching his, really his first sermon that we find here in the Gospels, right? We're early in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus, as we're going to see in verse number one, it says, And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, if you just back up a little bit to Matthew chapter 4, the last part there, you can just skim through. Basically, um, in verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And and so Jesus had an amazing multitude at this point that had begun to follow his, his ministry and his teaching. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Jesus is a couple of times um, in, in the Gospels, it records that Jesus had a big crowd that had started to gather over the days and the, and the journeys that he was doing and following him. And, and he would do things to disperse the crowds or to get rid of all the people. You know, and you think like, I'm sure Jesus, if Jesus, he didn't, but right, if he had the guy that was there and it was his, his administrator of his ministry, his PR guy, and he'd say, well, what are you doing? Like, you're, you're, you're killing the church every, all the time. You're getting rid of all these masses. When isn't that the point is to draw a crowd? And Jesus wasn't so much interested in his ministry and drawing a crowd. He spent most of his time pouring into 12 men, his 12 disciples, who, who they then would go out and, and do the ministry and start the early churches and begin the work. One of them would fall off and God would raise up another one, the Apostle Paul, um, in the coming years. But there were times where Jesus gathered large crowds and spoke to them. 
Now, this is one of those times. And so sometimes when we, when we, when we see something that Jesus is teaching, it, it says that he's speaking to his disciples. And we think these are the 12 guys that they were born again. They were, they were spent a lot of time with Jesus. This is, um, not, this is more inner circle stuff, next level stuff. This is stuff to the, the, the core. Well, well, but here, um, Jesus is speaking to everybody. He, his disciples are mentioned. Some, some, you know, would say he's speaking specifically of the 12. Sometimes that word disciples, as you understand in the New Testament, it doesn't necessarily always only refer to Jesus's 12 apostles, right? Sometimes the term disciple is, is anybody who's a Christ follower. So here we have the disciples and a great multitude, I'm sure including the 12 apostles, but then a great multitude. And so Jesus went up on a mountain and he, it says that he was seated. And so, you know, the, um, the, the tradition has always been throughout the years that the teacher would sit when he was, when he was going to teach something important and the, and the, the students would stand. And I don't know why we got it backwards nowadays, but that was always the way that it was. And, and the idea that, that a, a teaching position is a position of, seat, of seating is, is just all the way through, right? In colleges today, when they have a new position for the um, director of math at the college, what do they call it? A chair, right? It's the chair. He's the chair, the math chair, or he's the math chairman or chairperson. And because the concept that, that the teacher is sitting when he teaches. And so Jesus sat and, and again, culturally Jewish, that there was something that was of importance when the teacher sat and began to speak to the audience. Now, the place where Jesus went would have um, been that Jesus would have sat at the top of the mountain and he would have looked down and everybody that was gathered there would have been looking up to him and behind them would have been the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Gennesaret, Lake Tiberias. Um, and so there in the Galilee region, when we, when we go to Israel, and speaking of Israel, um, my dad actually just called me this week and he said, you might mention again to your church that the, the, the Israel trip still has some openings for this coming November and it's definitely getting close. You know, you still have, I think, nine months to, to, to get it together if you wanted to go with this trip. But we do still have some openings for the Israeli Israel trip, this the Holy Land tour coming up in November of 2018. The brochures are on the back. And so just a quick plug for that. But when we go to Israel... And we, and we spend about two and a half days around the Sea of Galilee. Ton to do there. Beautiful to see. Wonderful to get up early in the morning from your hotel um, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we stay in a really nice hotel and it has a high balcony. And, and I stood there early in the morning as the sun rised. And uh, actually, I went down to the Sea of Galilee before the sun rose and walked um, parts of the boardwalk in the morning. And then I was back in the hotel um, about sunrise and overlooking the... Um, the Sea of Galilee and the sun will come up on the opposite side of where we are. Um, and it's just beautiful with the, the sun coming up over the backside of the Sea of Galilee. And so um, Jesus was there and we'll take people on our tour and we'll kind of set this up. We'll, we'll arrange the, the group underneath and then Pastor Gerald will, will come up to the top or wherever we're speaking and, and we'll speak down. And with the Sea of Galilee in the background, it creates a natural acoustic. And it's that way to this day that, you know, you can be speaking in a talking voice and thousands of people could hear every word that you're saying in this natural amphitheater that's created there around the Sea of Galilee. Now, today, this last tour that we just went, we weren't able to do this. 
and, and we didn't do this because the place where we used to always do it today is, anybody? Tell them, Jess. Banana groves. Are bananas groves? Are bananas something else? Banana trees. They're growing bananas at the Sea of Galilee, which is so super crazy, right? That they're growing bananas in Israel. But the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. It's tropical. And so because of the climate, and they use absolutely every square inch of Israel for something productive. You know, you drive through Los Angeles, California, and you'll see like you'll be on the freeways. And, and in between the freeways, there's sometimes areas of, of openness and it's just dirty and it's gutter and it's all this stuff. Well, in Israel... You're driving, you're driving on the freeways around Jerusalem. Um, you're driving around Tel Aviv and, and you'll be on a freeway and they will be in between the freeway. There'll be this just dead area that they had to create for the building of the freeways. Well, somebody's in there and they're farming something in there. Like, and they're in there and they got crops going and they're, they're, they're growing something. So they're using all this, this space. Well, that space now where Jesus would have given the Sermon on the Mount, today they're growing bananas in it. So it's, it's pretty interesting to see and, uh, when we go. It says, then he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, now um, we'll go through. Let me, let me just read for you guys the, the, what we commonly call the Beatitudes. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So each one begins with a blessed and the word blessed there that the Greek word that, that that's translated into our English blessed is. Oh, how happy everybody say, Oh, how happy or like Phil, Phil Roberts, right? Happy, happy, happy. Nobody. Phil Roberts was happy, happy, happy. But the, the idea of blessed and, you know, as we use the term blessed, basically it means, oh, how happy. And, and so to be happy and happy is the person who happy is the person who um, and then a character that God desires for your life that Jesus taught and then a blessing that God is going to put in your life as a result of you assuming this beatitude as you taking on this characteristic, this godly characteristic that is counter cultural, it's counterintuitive. It, it's maybe opposite of what you might think, what the world would teach, what what secular um, psychology would encourage. And it kind of flies in the face and the be attitude. Sometimes we say they're the attitudes that you should be. And that's where it's the be attitudes or attitudes of life that you should have. Now, again, I, I just want to point out that this particular sermon, it's repeated the sermon on the Mount in, in portions or in somewhat of its entirety in Luke's gospel, Luke records it. But in the beginning here where Jesus says, and everybody argues about which it was and, and, and I'll take a crack at it again. This is just my opinion. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but, um, in Luke's gospel, he says he, he's going to, he's going to share the, 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 uh, the gospel or the beatitudes, the, um, sorry, what I'm trying to say, the sermon on the Mount, almost word for word in Luke's gospel. But he says in the beginning, he says, this was a sermon that Jesus taught on the plains. So, so just in that alone, that this one is taught on a mountain 
And the one that Luke records was taught in the plains. You know, and again, some will say they're the same thing. Luke recorded and Matthew recorded the same thing. Others would say, no, one was, one was taught on a mountain and one was taught on a plain. And I happen to be in that class. I don't know how you ignore the idea that Luke records for us that, he, that Jesus taught one of them on a plain and another one on a mountain. And then other places you'll find um, some of the things that we're going to find in the next three chapters that were taught. But, you know, they didn't have, like we do today, the Internet. Okay, they didn't have the podcast. They didn't have the, as I like to say, the tape. Go get the tape. That's why I've always been saying it because they actually used to be tapes. And so I know now they're not tapes anymore, but I still say, go get the tape. I started saying, go get the CD. I guess we don't even really do that anymore. Everything's online. But, you know, um, as Jesus would have traveled, you know, and the Bible tells us all the things that Jesus did, if they were all recorded, the volume of the books on earth couldn't contain all the things. And so it's not far-fetched to think that this was Jesus's kind of go-to sermon, so to speak. It was something that he often would have shared to, when, he, when he came in contact with different folks that hadn't heard this yet, okay? This is at the beginning. This is a, a radical change of concept for so many things. It flies in the face of so many of the things that the Pharisees and that Phariseeism was teaching and doing. And so Jesus is going to make some radical changes. So as he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, it wouldn't be strange to think that as a, a traveling teacher and preacher, that in his three years, now we have it recorded several times, but that in his three years, he gave it multiple times. And so, you know, one of the things, um, like I started to share with you guys is that it gets a little intimidating to teach Jesus's famous sermon on the Mount. And I think, you know, you want to do it justice. You want to do it right. And, um, you know, I've always been very intimidated by the Beatitudes and walking through them and explaining them and, you know, applying them and have never done a really good job with it. And, and over the years I've listened to, I, I don't know, guys, I just take a wild guess, but lots, many different pastors teach Matthew chapter five. I listened to seven this week, at least, um, different teachers teach these verses and, and walk through my Matthew chapter five. And none of them really seemed to what I would call nail it, like just really just nailed it. So perfect. Like, oh, that helps me just yeah, I get the Beatitudes now. Like I got it. Like the, you know, and, and I started asking God, you know, and I have never been able to do it. And I've always struggled with him and intimidated by it. And I think I got a little bit of an answer this morning, but, um, you know, listen, the, the, the Beatitudes and this section, part of the thing is, is that this is not a, a new moral code of the new Testament. This is not a, a list of things that we're to do like the Pharisees did. And if we'll learn them and do them, then we'll be blessed. This is more of a way that we should be that's Christ-like, that, that, that it comes as a natural, um, um, natural response to us being close to Jesus. You know what you find in the Beatitudes and the being obedient to him? It's like you'll read through them and you'll go like, I kind of do that already. Like I have that already. And I didn't, I don't have it because I came to the Beatitudes and I studied them and I learned it. And then I went out and practiced it. But instead what I did is naturally I fell in love with Jesus and, and I started growing in Jesus and, and, and I found myself doing these things naturally. And I think if the pastors over the years and myself, I think if we could take the Beatitudes and really intellectually unpack them this morning in a really laid out, perfect, neat box for you, that it could become a list of do's, right? Like these are things you have to do. And then, and then you, you know what they are, you know what the attitudes are, and then you face the situation and you have to do it. But listen, 
This is exactly what Jesus is teaching against. Because he's going to, in a minute, he's going to take the gloves off and he's going to punch the Pharisees in the face multiple, multiple times. Like, he's not going to pull punches. He's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, well, who was saying it? The Pharisees. And they were there. And he probably was looking at them. You've heard it say by them jokers, but I say to you, you know, and he's going to talk about the difference again between be and do. And the gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what? Who we are. Jesus said, I'm going to take the word of God so radical again for its time. He's going to take the word of God and he's going to do something new with it. Anybody know? He's going to place it upon the tablets of your heart. He's going to write it upon the tablets of your heart. So now the word of God is inside of me and it's who I am, not what I do. Follow? Okay, so not a New Testament law, not a moral code of behavior, rather an outgrowth or a byproduct of a life that has been connected to Jesus. He focuses on who we become, not what we do. Okay, be not a do-doer. Do-do, that's rubbish. Do-do is exactly like it sounds. Okay, it's do-do. So Jesus doesn't want do-do, he wants... um, life and, and, and liberty and love. And so we, we get this amazing list as Jesus first sits them down here in the mountain and he begins this teaching. And he says in verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. So I took a crack at a couple of these, but you know, the people that are poor, what do they do um, to get the things that they have? If you're poor, you're extremely poor. You beg, right? You ask, you, 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 you beg. And so to be spiritually poor means you have a poverty, not of, not of physical things, but of your spirit. And, and the things that you receive from God, the things that you receive spiritually, you, you don't get them because you, you deserve them. You don't get them because you earn them. You don't get them by what you do. You get them by begging, by, by understanding that you're spiritually poor. Basically, you're saying in your spiritual poverty that there's nothing in you that can earn. There's nothing in you that deserves a relationship with God, a blessing of God in your life. So, so again, counterintuitive to what the Pharisees believed in their self-righteousness and their legalism that was being taught in Jesus's day of how you please God. And so to be, to be spiritual beggars, you know, the new song, my new favorite song is that um, um, Reckless Love of God by uh, Corey Asbury. What's his name? Corey Asbury. Is that right? Okay. Um, but there's a line in that, in that song, and he says, I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. And, and that's the idea of being spiritually um, poor, of being the poor in spirit. I don't, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's a free gift of God that, that it's not because of me. It's in spite of me. You know, one of the hardest concepts for you to learn as a Christian is this. God is not, listen, listen, I want you to take this home with you. God is not going to bless your life because of your good works. God is not going to bless your life because you deserve it. You know why God's going to bless your life? Because he's good. He's going to bless your life in spite of you. He's going to bless your life whether you deserve it or not. And, and you couldn't earn it and you don't deserve it. And he's going to give it to you anyways. 
It's the amazing grace of God. And so having that, that, that spiritual poverty. And then look at the reward. And I love that everyone is, a, is an attitude that's followed with a reward, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I love it how God combines the two things that don't go together the most. Poverty and people who, who own the kingdom of heaven. So he says, for if you're broken in spirit and, and, and you're, 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 you're spiritually poor, you're poor, then for you, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And, and then he says in the next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And so we talk about uh, mourning as a godly sorrow. Okay. Um, you know, what, what are the things that, that, that really make you weep? You know, one of the things that should make us weep and one of the things that we should mourn over, even biblically, is our own sins, our own wretchedness, our own, um, our own failures, our own um, inability to, to do the things that God's called us to do. It should cause us to mourn over those things, you know, and, and a real brokenness. And it doesn't mean that, oh, I, you know, oh, I'm just terrible and I hate myself and I'm the worst and I'm going to cry about it. No, but, but in a sincerity of heart, that, you know, as you worship the Lord, you know, you want to connect with God and you're, you're worshiping the Lord and you're trying to, to really make a real connection with God. You know, whether you're at home alone in your room, as Jesus said, or you're here corporately. And, and, and instead of being able just to really worship the Lord, sing the song, say the prayer in your heart, that you talk to God the way you want to talk to him. You, you can't because all you can think about is the sin that you've committed. All you can think about is what you've done that doesn't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. And, it, and Satan is there, no doubt, lying to you and saying, hey, you, you, what are you, who are you raising your hands to the Lord? You don't forget what you did on Tuesday. And then you go, yeah, that's right. I just put my hands down. I don't even know why I'm here. God doesn't love me anyways. And this, this, this progression of lies that, that you know what, but the, the real result that God desires in our heart is, again, exemplified in King David. Brokenness, a, 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 a mourning. And then what you do is you, you weep. And, and you weep because you're broken. Okay, there's other reasons why we weep, right? There's other reasons why we might mourn. You know, I think one of the one of the bigger reasons to mourn in our lives is at, at the fact that people are dying and going to hell. You know, we see lost people. We see people that they don't know the Lord. We see broken people. We see people's lives that are completely broken. And, and one of the characteristics of God is is a, is a mourning over the things that break God's heart. And that's what the Bible says, that that the things that break God's heart should break your heart. And, and a real sincerity of spirit. And again. This is not a do, 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 right? How, how do you mourn over lost people who are dying and going to hell if you don't really care for them, if you don't have a heart for them, if it's not sincere in your heart, what do you do? Get some Visine and squirt your eyes up and, and blink a lot so the water comes down and pretend and get some tissue. I mean, you know, you can't do this. You just have to be this, right? Right? You have to, this has to be the person of your heart. And so blessed are you if you mourn for you will be comforted. And I love that. You know, you, you're going through something in your life that's causing mourning and, and, and you're willing to, to, to be, to mourn over those things and be honest before the Lord. God says he'll comfort your heart, he'll comfort your life. You're hurting for, you're hurting because somebody else is dying and going to hell. You're hurting because um, children are, are, are being sex trafficked in our nation. And that, that causes you to mourn and it hurts your heart. God says he's going to comfort you.
He's going to bring comfort in the areas of your life. And then in verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is an interesting um, word. It's a little bit hard to unpack. Um, two, two different ideas of meekness. The first one is, um, is strength under control. Okay? Meek doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that you're a weak person. And, oh, yeah, I'm weak. I have no power. Hope Satan leaves me alone because I can't fight him. You know, like I hope I hope I don't have no spiritual battles and things in life that are hard because I'm so meek and I'm so weak. That's not 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 it at all. Meekness is, um, it, but it carries the idea of weakness, so that's why we say that because so, you know. But it's it's strength under control. It's not like I don't have the ability to fight you or to beat you, but I've chosen not to. You know. Um, I, I heard a pastor illustrate it this way. I kind of liked it. He's coaching his son in a baseball game and a, a young man comes up to bat and has never, um, got on base all season and just <clears throat> struggles. And he, he hits a grounder right to his son and his son picks up the grounder and he just air mails it to first base, like 10 feet over the first baseman's head. And his dad's about ready to run out there and get after him for the, for the air and get on him. And he, whispers to his dad, hey, dad, I just wanted to let him get on base. He's never got on base all season. And that, that's kind of the, the idea of meekness. It's strength under control. And it's a, it's a willingness to, to give. And, and, and he could have got the out and thrown him down. And, and then the other idea of meekness is if you put a hyphen between the two E's in the middle, what do you come up with? Me, ek. Me, ek. You're really not that important. You know, and that's, that's, that's the idea is that you're, you're really not that great. You're really not that spiritual that Jesus is that great and that Jesus is the giant. And, you know, it's, it's a real, um, humble type of, you know, honest perspective of who we are. And then he says, um, for they shall inherit the earth. And so the meek will inherit the earth. The poor in spirit will will inherit the kingdom of God. Those that mourn will be comforted. And then he says in verse number six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Now this one, I don't think you need to really um, try to unpack too much into what the Greek is or the words are. I think it's pretty simple that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll find it. You know, my favorite verse in Jeremiah 29 is not verse 11. That's the most popular verse. Everybody loves it, right? Jeremiah 29 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you says the Lord's thoughts of good and not evil to give you a future and a hope. A really popular verse. But two verses later in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, God says that if you seek me with all your heart, that you will find me, that I will be found. If you pray and you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And, and here Jesus said that if you, if you desire, um, it, it says if you, he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, you will be filled. You'll find it. Do you, do you desire God in your life? You have to have this. Listen, this, this one right here, th- this could radically change the entire experience of our whole church, of our whole lives. If everybody came on a Sunday morning and, you know, again, regardless, it takes me off the hook, it takes the worship team off the hook, it takes our building off the hook, because rather than look to any of those things that you just hunger and thirst for righteousness, you hunger and thirst for, for a connection with God in your life, then you're going to get that. You're going to find that. God's going to show up and meet those needs because then you're looking to him and not anything else in your life. But a real desire in your life, you know, as people gather for hunger, for thirst and righteous, uh, for 
righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Pretty simple, you know. So don't ever say, you know, I, I've had this conversation so many times where people say, oh, I tried that and it didn't work. I prayed that prayer nothing happened. I, you know, I talked to the God and I talked to your God and I read that Bible and, and I asked Jesus in my heart and nothing ever happened. I, I asked to get saved and I never got saved. I've had people say that all the time to me, all the time. But the bottom line is they're lying. Either they're lying or God's lying. And I think I'm going to go with them being the liars and God telling the truth because here, Jeremiah 29, 13, as I quoted, 22 other places in the Bible, God says that if you seek him, you will find him. And then he goes on in verse 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so, again, another B attitude that God wants you to have is merciful. Are you a merciful person? Are you, do you show mercy? You know, the Bible says the, the, the rod that you use to measure it out, and a rod would be a yardstick or a measuring stick, the rod that you use to measure it out, that it'll be measured back to you. You know, I always try to err on the side of grace. I always try to err on the side of giving somebody the benefit of the doubt because I'm afraid that, and I know that I've, I've you know, I know I'm really young at 27, but I've been around long enough at least to know that someday I'm going to be the one who blew it. Someday I'm going to be the one who's on the hot seat. And, and, and when I'm on the hot seat, I, I, want the, I, want, I want mercy. I want grace. I want forgiveness. I want a second chance. And so when I have the opportunity then, and someone else is on the hot seat, I want to give mercy. I want to show mercy. I want to be a merciful person. And that's a quality. It's an attitude of, of, of Jesus is to be a person of mercy. And then he says in verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. I'm sorry. So, so I, I just forgot on the mercy one. Um, oh yeah, they'll obtain mercy. And then number eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So pure in heart, um, there, there's a difference between um, uh, purity and clean, right? Like you can have, um, I think there was a bunch of soap brands before, right? And one of them advertised that they were pure, which means it had no deodorant. It had no um, additives. It had no, no fragrance in it. Which was it? Ivory. It's pure. Okay, so that's the idea that there's nothing added. It's pure. It's, you know, your, your heart is pure. And that in that, in your purity... Um, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And, and so, you know, the, the promise on the, the pure of heart. And again, you know, you, you can be, um, pure on the outside seemingly, right? And, and that's sometimes where we focus, right? Don't sometimes we focus on, you know, what other people think we are, you know, maybe in our, in our heart, we're, we're, we're angry or in our heart, we're cursing them in our heart. We're mad at them because, but because of this idea of purity and wanting to be, you know, white and pure, then we smile to them and we well, everything's fine. You know, I want to have a good attitude. And, but in my heart, there's really something else going on. And that's what Jesus is doing. That purity of, of, of heart, of purity, like blessed are the pure in heart. Not, not just the ones who fake it on the outside, but the one who's really, that's how you are in your life and in your heart. And again, can you go out and do that? Can you be pure in heart? Can you go out and do pure of heart? The answer is no. You can't do that. If it's not in you, if it's not who you are, it's not something you can fake. No, it's, it's a godly characteristic that God can work in your life and you can become. 
But the Holy Spirit of God has to work it in your life by you just naturally getting close to Jesus. And as you get close to Jesus, then you become these things. And so the, 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 um, the pure in heart, you shall see God. I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I long for the most in life is to see God. You know, the Bible says no man has ever seen God and lived. Okay, so there's been nobody. Moses is the closest thing. And I guess the folks that saw Jesus um, as, he, as, he, as, a, as a human, they got to see God um, in fleshly form. But to see God in his glory, um, Moses and, Eli- or Moses and um, Elijah, John, um, Peter and James were there on the Mount Transfiguration. Maybe that case, Moses, when God passed by and just showed him his, his, his wake as the Lord went by him. But, but nobody's really seen God, but there'll be a day we'll get to see God. And so for the pure in heart, the reward is to see God. And then he says, um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So a peacemaker is, you know, not somebody who just shies away from a fight. A peacemaker is somebody who destroys their enemies by making them a friend. Somebody who, who goes the extra mile to make peace, to be a friend, to, to be kind. And so the peacemakers... For they shall be called sons of God. And then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we had um, this same promise in verse three, the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. So we will, Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate who? You, us, me. So we, we shouldn't think it's strange that at times people in this world don't like us and they hate us and, and that they persecute us. You know, James, um, I'm sorry, John and Peter in Acts chapter five, right? In verse 40, 41, you know, they, they remember the story. I'm sure you guys know the story. Well, they were um, imprisoned by the, the religious folks, the Sanhedrin, and, and then they were let go and then they were captured again. And this time they had an advice and, and Gamaliel came out and he said, Hey, you know, if this thing is of God, then, then it'll go, you know, it'll, it'll be something, but if it's not, it'll, it'll just go to nothing. So, you know, just, just let them go and tell them don't speak in this name anymore. Well, they, they got Peter and John back and they said, no longer preach in the name of the gospel. And then it says they beat them they beat him up pretty good and sent him back out. And they went out immediately on the street and began to preach. And it says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So Peter and John set that example of getting beaten for sharing the gospel and then rejoicing in it. And, and because Jesus said here, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. He's going he's gonna to add to that as we get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, uh, we always give a little disclaimer here because as Christians, sometimes we can, uh, we can be weird, you know, and, and we can do things. There was a group of ladies, true story, who were wanting to give an illustration of, um, of mustard seed faith. And so they, they went in the streets naked and covered themselves with mustard. And they were trying to, to ter- tell a Bible story about mustard seed faith. And, and they got arrested and they went to, pr- they went to jail, you know, prison, but they went to jail. And, and, and in jail, they were um, saying, oh, how great it is that we've been persecuted for righteousness sakes. You're not persecuted for righteousness sake. You're persecuted because you're a freak who got naked and broke the law and put mustard on yourself and went out in the street. 
You know, we know people who stand on the corners with megaphones and yell at people, you're going to hell. And, you know, and then if the cars don't slow down, they, they throw apples and oranges at the cars and, you know, throw things at them and, you know, stand on the corners with their phones and they're, oh, you're going to hell and you turn or burn. And, you know, and then they get people coming back around the corner and throwing tomatoes at them and, you know, throwing things at them out of the cars. And, and then have a tomato hit them in the face and they're like, oh, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, dude, you're being persecuted because you're a freak who's standing on a corner yelling at people. Like, there's a difference between being persecuted for righteousness sake and being persecuted because you're weird. Because you're, you know, you're doing things that, that, that you know. I, I like Andy Minio in one of his songs. He, he says, you know, sometimes Christians will, um, and it's a true story, it happened, and he, he wrote a little song lyric about it, but they, they held, Christians held signs that said, God hates faggots. And, and so Andy Minio says, you know, that that's, that's not Jesus. And, you know, I, I apologize for any, anybody who did that. I promise you that Jesus would not act that way. And that's the truth. Jesus would never hold a sign up that says that. And, and, and so, again, if you're being persecuted because you have a, a sign that's vulgar, you're not being persecuted for righteousness sake. You're being persecuted because you're weird. And then he says um, in verse number 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Quick question in verse number 11. You guys have verse number 11 highlighted in your Bible? You have it underlined? You have happy faces and stars by it? How many of you guys have it printed on some like fancy stationery on your fridge? You don't? Do any of you guys keep scripture around your house or on your fridge? Yeah? This is not one of them? I bet you got Jeremiah 29 11 up there, right? I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Or you got Ephesians up. God will provide all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, right? Like we put those promises of God on the fridge. But listen, I want to just tell you, this is a promise of God. And, and, and this maybe sometimes we do a little better if we had these promises of God nailed to the fridge as opposed to the other ones that, you know, that we lose, we lose our, our appetite over and we stub our toe because we're so angry that, oh, God, why did that hurt so bad? And, you know, and we get so upset about these menial things in life when God promises you that you're going to face. And not only that, he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. Again, listen, falsely. For my namesake. Not because you deserved it and you earned it and that's who you are. And they're saying things evil against you because you're an evil person. That's not the point, right? The point is that when, they, when they're saying it falsely. You know, Jeremiah is one of my favorite examples. God tells Jeremiah, the prophet. He says, I want you to, to preach the gospel. And so Jeremiah so faithfully, man, is preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Jeremiah gets thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. He gets upset, he gets released, he goes back, and God says, go out and preach the gospel. And he goes out and he does, he's doing exactly what God's telling him to do. And he gets thrown in prison. He finally gets so mad. He's sitting in this prison. He's like, God, I did everything that you told me. And here I am in this prison. I will no longer speak in your name. And then the next verse is just this powerhouse of a verse in the Bible. And it says, but the word of God, it, it swelled up in my heart like a fire and I could not but contain it. Jeremiah said, and, and, and so, but the idea was that he was doing everything right and he ended up in prison 
And so don't always think it's so strange when people revile you or persecute you or say evil things against you that, that actually you're blessed when that happens. And then he says in verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. And for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this biblical concept too, don't think that you get a pass. Every great prophet like Jeremiah, who I just mentioned, was persecuted for righteousness sakes. And so they did, they've done it all the way through history. It's not going to stop because you were born. It's not going to stop because you became a Christian. That it's going to continue and that it's it's um, but great is your reward in heaven. Somebody say amen. What do you think a great reward in heaven looks like? Not just a reward in heaven, but a great reward in heaven. Who wants a piece of that? What is that? Like a special jet pack that you get to fly through the galaxies, like at mock speed, like cruising. What, what is this? What is a great reward? You've already got a great house and streets of gold and Jesus is there. And, you know, but you get this great reward in heaven that, that should motivate us, right? That it's all worth it. Anything we go through is so worth it because God is there. Let's see if we can get to verse 16, you guys, and then we'll stop. Um, You know, I always tease people about this verse 12 reward in heaven. And, you know, somebody will do something for the church or for the Lord. And I always tell them, hey, that's so nice of you. I'm so thankful for what you did. I got great news and I got, I got bad news for you. You know, what do you want, the good news or the bad news? I always tell them, you know, hey, the good news is you have, you know, for what you did, you're going to receive a huge reward. So great. Like, you're going to love it. It's going to be the best reward you've ever got for what you did. They're like, really? That's the good news. What's the bad news? You got to wait till heaven to get it, but it's there. It's waiting for you when you get there. Verse 13, it says, but you are the salt of the earth. All right, come on. Somebody say salt, salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So I'm going to spend just a minute unpacking this verse and talking about salt for a minute, but I don't want to just breeze through this, but so first of all, it says you are the salt of the world. Did Jesus say, I want you to become the salt of the earth? No, look at it again. Verse 13, please become or what you are. First of all, that carries responsibility. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Let me tell you something about the salt of the earth. Super important. Salt does so many wonderful things. Okay. It preserves. It flavors, it seasons, it does so many important things in life. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. The Bible talks about um, that, that the restraining power that, that's here on earth and, 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 and the restraining power, the Bible says in Revelation, when we get raptured is going to be removed. And the type of debauchery, the type of lifestyles that are described in Revelation chapter 5 through 19 during the seven year tribulation period is absolutely as far south as you can go in, in evilness. And one of the things that happened different was the church was removed. And once the church is removed, it's a restraining power that has restrained evil. And listen, believe it or not, you folks, Christians here in this earth, we are a restraining force against evil in the world. And it's a call of God on our lives to be salt in the earth. And so for that, I, I've heard pastors teach that the Holy Spirit will be removed 
for the great tribulation because that restraining power, and what is the restraining power? It's the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit will be removed during the seven years of tribulation. Well, that's, that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The work of the Holy Spirit continues all the way through the great tribulation. So how could the Holy Spirit be removed and God complete his plan of seven years of, of destruction and, 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 and the tribulation without the work of the Holy Spirit on earth? So the Holy Spirit has to be there. But that, that restraining power that's removed, it, it, it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. That's what it is. And so when the church is removed, the Holy Spirit goes on and continues his ministry through the seven years. But when we're removed, when this salt, when this restraining power is removed, the, the world's going to become a very different place. So we are to be the salt of the earth. Okay. And then Jesus says, if the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. It's a warning. So there's a couple different ways that salt can lose its flavor. Okay. The first, the first idea is that, um, you know, if you take salt and let's say something about this big and I have a full of water and I pour a cup of salt in there and I mix it up really good and you drink it, what's it going to taste like? Cup of salt, this much water. Pretty salty. Yeah. Yeah. No cooks in here. You're not sure. Okay. But if I threw a cup of salt into, into the, the reservoir up here at top of the hill in Tooele, would it salt the water? It would lose its saltiness, right? And so as salt gets saturated, as salt gets um, consumed in, into the world and it becomes like the world and it becomes diluted. And when our Christianity and our faith becomes too level, like it, 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 it can lose its saltiness. You know, others say that, that, this, that Jesus talked about, you know, that the salt of the day of, of Jesus, you know, it wasn't like they didn't have Morton salt out here on uh, Highway 80, you know, that was a science of how they created their salt. And there were certain batches that based on the chemical makeups that could lose their saltiness. And so then they would take it and they would throw it out in the street and it would be good for nothing. But other than that, you know, they found salt from Egypt that's 3,500 years old and it's still salty. It doesn't just sit around and lose its salt. Unless, it, again, it, it becomes like the world, then, then, it, then it loses its salt and it gets saturated. And so we're to be the salt of the earth. And then he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. We are way out of time, you guys. I'm so sorry. So. I'd hate to let the light of the world go away, but I better let you guys out of here. We're like 10 minutes over already. Let's pray. Let's stand. <coughs> Father God, we come before you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you've called us to be salt and light. And Lord, we thank you for the beatitudes of who we're supposed to be, Lord God. And Lord, that it's not do, that it's be, it's become, God. It's, it's get close to Jesus. It's a byproduct of us falling in love with Jesus, that we don't become pharisaical. And Lord, you're in um, the very next verses, you're getting ready to re begin to hammer um, the ideas of the Pharisees that were legalistic, that were self-righteous, that were religious folks of your day, Jesus, that you constantly fought with because they, they, they held on to the law but they miss the heart of God. And so, Father, help us to find the real heart of God, the heart of a loving Father and what he desires in our lives as Christians and Christ followers. And God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.